You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Nehemiah, beginning in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So let's begin here. God is a God of renewal. God is a God of restoring. There are a lot of R-E words in the Bible to describe who God is and what God is doing. Anyone who's planted a church in the last 20 years has had a long list to, to you know, redemption, redeemer church, renewal, restoration church, remedy church, regeneration church, revive church, re- a resurrection church, reality, for goodness sake. Here's a simple way of explaining why there are so many RE words to describe God and his work in the Bible. Here it is. It's because God doesn't start over from scratch. God doesn't make all new things. God makes all things new. That's not just semantics there. That's a very important principle. And it's for this reason that Beth Moore said RE is the most beautiful prefix in human history. Because it means that God is invested in healing and transforming what he's made. And while I am confident that it would have been far easier to just walk away from this whole human project thing and start over fresh somewhere else in some, you know, inhabitable planet in the universe, or maybe it would have been easier just to wipe this thing clean and start over. Instead, what we see in the Bible is that God initiated a very long, patient costly plan to repair his creation. A plan as we carry on in scripture into the New Testament that we see hinges on the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. The story of the Bible is that despite the ruin and the devastation of sin that has impacted all of humanity and has touched every corner of creation, he redeems. Jesus renews all things. He redeems us from sin. He restores us to our humanity. He regenerates us by his Holy Spirit. He resurrects us out of death. He reconciles us to God. He reunites us with the family. He rebuilds broken people and broken places. And in one of the most shocking turn of events, God welcomes us to rebuild with him. Us. The very ones that tore this thing down. Us, the very ones that are responsible for the devastation. We are the bull in the china shop. Like Miley, we came in like a wrecking ball. (laughs) And yet we are welcomed to participate in the rebuilding. 
Isaiah 61 prophesied, they shall rebuild or build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Who is they? Seems like some important work, but who is this? Isaiah 61 shows us that they is the poor, the brokenhearted, the devastated, the captives that have heard the good news, the good news of Jesus, who have been transformed by his grace and now join him in his renewing work. One of the most vivid pictures of this that we see in scripture is found in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah that begins like this, verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. The words of Nehemiah. So in a time of distress and need, God raised up a leader named Nehemiah. His name is very important because it means Yahweh comforts. God comforts. And he's raised up to organize a people and to rally them to rebuild. Now, I've got to get this out of the way very early on here. The context of Nehemiah, as we'll see throughout the book, was a project and a mission to rebuild a wall. And I have to admit, I was actually planning on teaching this sermon series a few years ago, but I read the room and determined that it's probably not the right time. And then I thought I was in the clear, and then it was back in the news. I'm like, okay, there's never going to be a good time, so we're just going to go for it. But let me, let me show you the difference here, because when we, see, when we hear build the wall, we're, we're thinking something very specific. But for the people of Israel, it was so much more. For them, it represented stability and security. Structurally speaking, it was a retaining wall in many places. Jerusalem was built on a hill somewhere around 2,500 feet elevation. Uh, Mount Zion, you ascended to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was built and is in the hill country. And in many places, the wall wasn't just surrounding the city. It was actually holding it up like a retaining wall. This was necessary infrastructure. But also, this was about security. After continual foreign attacks and captivity, the city had been destroyed. Their temple was destroyed. Their homes were leveled. Their walls were left in ruins. And after nearly a century of desolation, these meaningful projects to rebuild became, uh, began to surface. The book of Ezra that precedes the book of Nehemiah there, Ezra describes the efforts uh, to restore worship in Israel through rebuilding the temple, which is an important place for God's people to begin. But the city was still very vulnerable and it was languishing. In fact, we read in verse 3 that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. This is very important because this was a city that was intended by God to radiate his glory to the nations. Of all places across the globe, God chose this very place to allow his blessings to flow to the nations like a river out of the city to be a model picture of God's blessing and holiness and righteousness and glory radiating for the nations. And here it is destroyed in shambles. And so God stirs the heart of a leader and eventually the hearts of people to do something about it. Why does God allow us to see brokenness? Why does God open up our eyes to certain things that are unsettling? Well, I can tell you this, it's not so that we can resent situations. It's not just so that we can grow 
more and more depressed about the current state of things. So why does God open up our eyes to things? And I think you know the answer to this. It's so that we can join him. It's so that we can, in a costly way, in a sacrificial way, invest ourselves as a part of the healing of that broken thing. Not just so that we can point it out and say that is so broken, but we invest ourselves to be a part of the solution. And so today what I want to do is I want to begin by asking a very simple question. How can we join God's ongoing mission to rebuild? How do we step into this renewing work that God is doing all throughout time? And there are three things that I want us to notice from this passage, and it begins with this. We have to remain available. Remain available. Today, there are a lot of things in our lives that are designed, intentionally designed, to eliminate interruptions. Do not disturb on the phone. I've got it on right now. I love do not disturb. I was sleeping on do not disturb for years, and I realized how beneficial this is. Uh, We have things like noise-canceling headphones, We have tips and tools for carrying out a well-managed day free from interruption. And don't get me wrong, I love this. I love a well-organized, well-managed, non-distracted sort of day. But here's the problem. The problem is that in this world of eliminating distractions, of eliminating interruptions, we we leave very little margin in our days and in our time to hear God's call to us and to identify where he may be directing us or maybe redirecting us. And the reason we may be missing God is that he often appears through unplanned interruptions. The very situations that we seek to avoid are the very places that God is speaking to us. I just don't have time for that. I'm so busy, my plate is so full, I have so many responsibilities, I just don't have time for that distraction, right? We've all said it. Think about Moses. He's out shepherding his flock. He's doing important things like caring for his flock, caring for his family. He's carrying out his business. And then suddenly he's confronted with a burning bush. And he's he's got an option at that point. Continue on with his business or turn aside. Or how about this? How about Mary? Carrying on with her young life, preparing for marriage. And then she's met by an angel with this shocking news Shocking news of an unplanned, miraculous pregnancy and him telling her that she's going to bear a child named Jesus and he is going to change everything. And on and on and on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths, and this one's going to sting, I know, and canceling our plans by sending us people with demands and requests. The very thing we pray, God, keep out of my life. God's sending our way. We may pass them by, preoccupied with more important tasks. The Good Samaritan's a good example of that. But when we do that, we pass by the visible sign of the cross raised in front of our paths to show us not our way, but God's way must be done. So when I was a brand new minister, I heard this phrase that I loved and I sort of clung to and it was we assemble the wood for the altar but God sends the fire it's based on the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel I love that kind of thing and anytime in church world you say fire I mean it's just got some mm to it right but I realized something that while it's this powerful 
image, right? Like we plan, we assemble, we work hard, we get things ready, and then God sends the fire. I think it assumes something incorrectly. It assumes that we initiate moves of God. It assumes that we can somehow assemble all of the right elements and all the right things together, and then God breaks in. Maybe I've just failed enough to know that's not how it works. Maybe what I bring to you now 13 years into this is more failure than success. But testimony of God's breakthrough. Oftentimes, if you search through scripture or you look back through church history or you even retrace our 15 years as a church, what you will find is that the greatest moves of God come out of nowhere. Look at me in verse one. Now it happened. In the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Now it happened. Or some of your translations read, and it came to pass. It was just another day. Just another day in early winter in the year 446 BC, there is no human agenda, there is no plan, there is no grand scheme, there is no vision, it happened. It just happened. What happened? Here's a theme, and you may want to write this down, that we're going to see all throughout the book of Nehemiah, and really all throughout the pages of scripture. Here's what happened. Providence happened. What is providence? Providence is God's divine plan breaking in and often unannounced. It's God's plans superseding our plans in sometimes painful ways. Nehemiah, we're told, was a Jewish exile. Him and his people had been taken captive across the Fertile Crescent into the furthest points of the Middle East through different conquests. He and his people were enslaved there, but he finds himself in a particular place of privilege. He's the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes in his winter palace. He doesn't just have a palace. He has a winter palace in a place called Susa. And he's there, and he gets a visitor. We're told that it's his brother. That may be his biological brother. It may mean just his kinsman, one of his, you know, Jewish brothers. And they bring a report from Jerusalem, and everything changes. This is so important to set this up because everything that we're going to read about throughout the rest of the book of Nehemiah, all of these inspiring tales of leadership and people rallying together and God doing things among his people, it begins with this unassuming moment. It simply happened. Moves of God happen when God opens the eyes of his people, stirs their hearts in a way where they can't ignore it, And then they respond to the occasion in faith. I don't know what we're getting into, but I'm down. Okay, we're in. Not trying to become someone important. Not trying to make an impact. What I have discovered is that the moment you try to make an impact, you failed. Not trying to gain fame, not trying to get a book in the Bible written about them, but simply remaining open to God's interruptions. Why? Because interruptions are often invitations from God to join him in his work. This is why I have such a hard time with vision casting. 
We are in prime evangelical church vision casting season. And my problem isn't with vision casting per se. My problem is with how we vision cast. And I think it drives people nuts. Maybe it's driven you nuts when people ask, what's reality's vision for the new year? What's the vision for the new year? As if God's kingdom sort of resets and refreshes every calendar year and is like scouring the universe for a new slogan for the year. What's our slogan going to be for this year? And my typical response is going to be something to the effect of we're going to remain open to God's leading. We're going to keep pressing into Christ, putting our roots down into him and following where he's leading. It's response. It's faith. John Stott described the whole of the Christian existence, all of Christian worship in three words, response to revelation. What are we doing here? We are responding to the God who has revealed himself to us. Another theologian once said the task of every generation is to discover in which direction the sovereign redeemer is moving and then move in that direction. It's necessarily responsive. We are not in control, reality. We do not determine the plan. We do not determine the vision. We do not determine the timeline. We receive God's heart for people and places and then we say yes in faith. But wait. I thought good leaders are proactive. Good leaders have clear, articulated plans and direction. Good leaders are decisive. Good leaders go where no man is willing to go. Yeah. And Nehemiah was a great leader. He was bold. As we'll see, he was clear. He was decisive. He was level-headed. He was wise. He went where no person was willing to go. But the beginning of Nehemiah is so important because it reminds us that the best things that God does can't be schemed. It can't be contrived. The best things that God does come to us by grace. They happen to us and often in unplanned and undesirable ways. You see, Nehemiah isn't ultimately a story about good leadership. Nehemiah isn't ultimately a story about people rallying together to do something extraordinary for God. Nehemiah, and listen, Nehemiah is a story of God's faithfulness to restore his people. Nehemiah is a story of Yahweh comforts. Nehemiah is a story of him initiating a work in the hearts of his people to then respond with a plan to rebuild. What do we need to do to get involved? We need to remain available. Amen? You guys still with me? Okay, new year, new you, new opportunity. Number two, we've got to raise questions. Look with me in verse two. And I, what? Ask them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So for me, as the years go on, I have realized something about myself, and it's that I have a very, very hard time with know-it-alls. I have a very hard time with know-it-alls, people who have, or at least think they have all the answers. They are very difficult people. I'm just being honest with you right now. They are very difficult people to interact with. And I'm not saying they don't deserve love, grace, and kindness. Everyone, including know-it-alls, deserves our love, our patience, our grace, and our kindness. But listen to me. They do not deserve to be followed. Know-it-alls do not deserve to be followed. Know-it-alls 
make terrible leaders. Good leaders like Nehemiah begin and continue by asking questions and not just questions that they know the answers to, not just questions that are gonna give them the answers that they want to hear, but questions that will supply them with the raw, honest truth, how it really is. It's what Fleming Rutledge described as taking a fearless inventory. When was the last time you took a fearless inventory of your life? Nehemiah is taking an in, a fearless inventory of God's people and their city, asking hard questions and not being afraid to deal with the answers that he may find. We need the diagnosis before we can supply the remedy. We are way too quick to say, here's what this needs. Here's what these people need. Here's what I bring to the table. How about we pause and we ask some questions before we jump in first? Notice the questions he asks. He asks about the condition of the people and he asks about the condition of the place. He's asking about the spiritual well-being as well as the practical social well-being of God's people in Jerusalem. What you're going to find today in Western Christianity is typically two extremes. On one hand, you're going to find expressions of Christian faith that focus completely on the uh, condition of people's souls. We're all about souls. We're saving souls. How's your soul? What's going on in your soul? It's all about souls. Anything not overtly spiritual, anything not directed at the soul is seen as a distraction. You start to talk about important social issues, people are going to tense up and be like, whoa, whoa, are you trying to be a woke church or something? Are you, you, are you preaching a social justice gospel? What have you done? And, and they say things like, if, you, if, if we just focus on people's spiritual states, if we just focus on the soul, everything's going to work itself out. And then on the other hand, you're going to find expressions of Christian faith that focus completely on social dynamics. They avoid topics like sin and repentance and evil and the devil and demons because it's all systemic. It's all about corrupt systems. If you just focus on the environment, if you focus on the place, if you focus on the system, then everything is going to work itself out. But notice that Nehemiah reminds us here that we are called to care about both, both people and places. Why? Because as we see from Scripture, God cares about both people and places. There's a ministry back east that I admire, and their vision as a church is this, to follow Christ in his mission, listen, of loving people, places, and things to life. To follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. And because Nehemiah asks questions about both people and places, guess what? He gets answers about their spiritual state as well as their practical conditions. He gets a clear report about both. Look with me in verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So there are a few descriptions here that summarize the condition of God's people and their place. The first is the description remnant. What is a remnant? A remnant is a small group that is left over. Think about long division. Like this is the extent of my math knowledge, by the way. 
Long division, you got your whole number left, and then you got your remainder. You're like, I don't even know what to do with it. It's just that remainder over there. What's a remnant? It's the remainder. It's not even the whole number. It's just like the leftover bit. It's the leftovers. And it's the word that's often used to describe the people of God, not the biggest, not the moral majority, not the most powerful, not the most influential, the small portion that remains that is constantly struggling to reach critical mass. Secondly, reproach. It says they're in great trouble and in shame. God's people are a disgrace. They're scorned. Their name is a byword. They are a reproach. This isn't just a sad state. This is a shameful state. It is embarrassing to be considered a Jew. It is embarrassing to be considered one of God's covenant people. In fact, this is exactly what Ezekiel had prophesied would happen long before. That if God's people rebelled against his word, if God's people turned their back on God's covenant and his law, that God's judgment would come upon them. The Lord says in Ezekiel 5, Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of what? Reproach among the nations all around you in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you. The people of God that were supposed to be this, this picture of moral uprightness, this is what a holy people looks like, is now a cautionary tale, an embarrassment, in shame. And lastly, they are in ruin. I don't know how else to describe it. The city looks like a 209 times insta reel. Broken, wrecked, charred. There's another car on fire. <laughs> There's another car in the ditch. There's another building. Rubble, 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 rubble. Or maybe like your way into church today. <laughs> another tree on the road, another house falling. Like, the, the, the city is destroyed, and not just a one-time occurrence, but now a century-long desolation. It's, it's in shambles. So let me ask you a question. Does any of this sound familiar at all? God's people are a remnant, not a majority, but a minority. You look around and you ask, where are all God's people at? You read the stats and you see the continual decline of Christian faith in America, and you say, what's going on? God's people are in reproach. Be honest for a second. There's shame associated with being a believer today. You are embarrassed to tell certain people in your life that you're a believer. You are embarrassed at certain points to be associated with the evangelical church. Maybe it's because of regretful political alliances that were made and then backfired, which, by the way, happened to Israel as well. Maybe it's because of corruption among leaders that God had called to live morally upright lives. Now they are in scandal and abuse one story after another. I'm afraid to turn on the news to hear about another evangelical pastor that's fallen. And God's people are in ruin. This is both a spiritual description as well as a practical one. Does any of this sound familiar? See, these descriptions are very hard to hear. It's hard to hear about this as it describes a people in a city 2,500 years ago, it is even more difficult when we have to get honest about ourselves today. And the truth is, we don't really want to get that honest about ourselves. It's difficult to raise questions about the state of the church, 
It's difficult to raise questions about the state of our city that we live in. It's difficult to raise questions, difficult questions, about the state of our own lives and our own relationships and our own families and our own worship and our own devotion and our own souls. But listen, if, and this is the big if, if we are going to be used by God, if we are going to join him in his work of rebuilding, then we must be willing to raise difficult questions and then willing to take fearless inventory of what we discover. How do we get involved? We raise questions. And lastly, it means we need to respond empathetically. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. There are a few extraordinary things that we see here in these opening lines of Nehemiah. The first is Nehemiah's response. This is not new news to Nehemiah. Nehemiah would have certainly been aware of the state of Jerusalem. The city had been in ruins for nearly a century. This was his people. This was his lineage. He knew this story very well. But for some reason, hearing about it again, he's moved. Could you imagine today, like, someone coming up to you and telling you, like, hey, man, I got bad news. There was a ship that sunk in the Atlantic 111 years ago. And you're like, oh my God, I gotta sit down for this one. Not because you saw James Cameron and like, like, you know, like out on the ship deck. Like, I mean, just hearing about it. Like, there was a ship that sank 111 years ago. I'm just like, oh my gosh. Oh, I'm gonna fast over this one. Could you imagine? This isn't new news. But all of a sudden, God opens his eyes to an overlooked old thing and stirs his heart with a renewed concern. The second thing remarkable about this is that Nehemiah did not ignore it. As soon, as soon as he hears this, it says he sat down, he wept, he fasted, and he prayed. So there's a scene uh, from a movie, Hotel Rwanda, which just shows kind of a portion of the civil war and genocide that occurred in Rwanda in the 90s. The story's about a guy named Paul who's a hotel manager, and the hotel is sort of hosting these diplomats and the news media that's starting to pick up the story. And there's this conversation between Paul and the cameraman, who I think is Joaquin Phoenix or whatever, and he says, I'm really glad that you shot this footage, that the world's gonna see it. It's the only way that we have a chance that people might intervene. This is our only chance. If the world sees it, the world's going to step in and intervene. And the cameraman responds, yeah, but if no one intervenes, is it still good to show? And Paul responds, how could they not intervene when they witness such atrocities? And he responds, if people see this footage, they'll say, oh my God, that's horrible. And then they'll go on eating their dinners. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. Carrying on. Like most people, Nehemiah could have just said, oh my gosh, that, that's, that's horrible. And then just go on eating his dinner. But instead, he allows it to affect him. Emotionally, spiritually, even physically. Cutting himself off, denying himself of food. He allows their pain to become his pain. He allows their affliction to become his affliction. He weeps, he fasts, he prays, and not just once, but as we'll see later on in the story, for months, 
nearly four months. See, the worst thing that we can feel towards someone or feel towards a people group is not hatred. It's not disdain. It's not resentment. The worst thing that we can feel towards someone is indifference, is apathy. And for us, people like us who have become so accustomed to seeing the brokenness that exists in the church today or seeing the brokenness that exists in our city today, heartbreaking examples of devastation everywhere that we turn, we are at serious risk of becoming apathetic people. We are at serious risk of becoming indifferent to so many examples of brokenness around us, of saying, oh my gosh, that is horrible, and then carrying on. That's why we today need more than just a good example of leadership like in Nehemiah. That's why today we need both an example of leadership but also rescue from an even greater leader named Jesus. It's interesting because there's actually a lot of similarities between Nehemiah and Jesus, if you think about it. Like Nehemiah, Jesus enjoyed the comforts of the palace. Like Nehemiah, Jesus made himself available to the mission of God. Like Nehemiah, Jesus asked questions about the people and places. Like Nehemiah, Jesus wept over the condition of Jerusalem. We're told in Luke 19, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over the same city. Like Nehemiah, Jesus prayed. Like Nehemiah, Jesus fasted. But unlike Nehemiah, Jesus didn't just allow the devastation to stir his heart. Jesus allowed the devastation to pierce his heart entirely. Not just to affect him, but to overcome him completely. In a way that Nehemiah, great leader as he is, was just incapable of. Jesus, the gospel tells us, took on our affliction completely at the cross. He wasn't just stirred, he wasn't just moved to tears, but at the cross, Jesus, as our sin substitute, bears the consequence of our sins. He bears our rebellion, and as we see here in Nehemiah, he bears the reproach, the shame, the disgrace. And in exchange, Jesus gives to us his righteousness. He gives to us his life. He gives to us his spirit. And this is important. He gives to us his heart. We are not just being invited to be stirred in our hearts. We are being invited to receive a new heart. A heart that beats like Jesus. A heart that desires the things that Jesus desires. You see, the gospel gives us the the greatest motivation that we could ever find to join the work in rebuilding. We don't have to look any further than our own personal testimony of salvation. The way that my life was in ruins, the way that my life was in shambles, the way that my life was absolute devastation, not just for myself, but the people around me, and yet Jesus drew near and restored my life by his grace. Jesus loves broken people, and broken places back to life. And here's the deal. He is inviting us to join him. And the questions that I have for you today is this. Will you remain available? Will you be willing to raise hard questions? And will you respond with genuine concern? I believe that God is calling us, especially this year, to become an RE, as cheesy and cliche as it sounds, to become an RE kind of people. People who respond to God. People who pursue reconciliation. 
people who are willing and humble enough to repent of our sins, and those who say yes by faith to join him in his work of rebuilding. Amen? Let's say yes. Father, we thank you.